0: Please turn your attention to Genesis chapter 50. We are going to finish off our series on the life of Joseph this morning. And then next Sunday, I'm going to begin a new series on the Lord's Prayer, which will take us right through the fall season. Uh, But this morning, Genesis 50, as we wrap up our series on the life of Joseph. Genesis 50, verse 1. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. The Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atah near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atah, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mitzrayim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre which Abraham had bought along with a field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father." When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir son of Manasseh were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we come with anticipation to it because we know that you speak through it by your spirit. Lord, we have open ears and open hearts and ask that you'd speak a word in season to each one of us this morning. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a child named Lucy who's playing hide and seek with some other children in an old house. It was her turn to be it and finding herself in a room where there was no furniture except for a big, old-fashioned wardrobe. And hearing the sound of others clattering down the corridor in search of her, she stepped into the wardrobe to hide. There were clothes hanging in it and mothballs on the floor, and as she moved farther in toward the back of it, she could feel the clothes brushing against her face and arms and could feel the sound of mothballs under her feet. It was almost quite dark in there. She kept her arms stretched out in front of her, so as not to bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took a step farther in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel the woodwork against the tip of her fingers, but she could not feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still farther in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. Then she noticed that there was something crunching under her feet. I wonder, is that more mothballs, she thought, stooping down to feel it with her hands. But instead of feeling the hard, smooth wood on the floor of the wardrobe, she felt something soft and powdery and extremely cold. This is very queer, she said, and went on a step or two farther. Next moment, she found she was rubbing uh, against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and rough and even prickly. Why, it's just like the branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. And then she saw that there was a light in front of her, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a long way off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A Moment later, she found she was standing in the middle of a wood at nighttime with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air." Many of you will recognize this as the beginning of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it is an example of how stories, and in particular, fairy, fairy tales, capture our imagination and our hearts. Frederick Beekner, the American author and Presbyterian minister, says this. He says, as far as I know, there has never been an age that has not produced fairy tales. It doesn't seem to matter what is going on at the time. It can be a time of war or peace, of feast or famine. No matter what's up politically, economically, religiously, artistically. People always seem to go on telling these stories. And he articulates some of the reasons why these stories connect so deeply to us and we tell them to our, our, our children. One is that the fairy tale world, while magical, is usually close at hand. And the characters are just like us. So, for example, the house where children are playing hide and seek is an ordinary house. When Alice finds the looking glass over the mantel, she is curled up in front of a fire in Victorian England. Dorothy is living in Kansas when the cyclone comes twisting across the prairie. Another reason why we connect so deeply to these stories is because they're often a, a world of darkness and danger and ambiguity. There are wicked witches in disguise. There are fierce dragons that guard the treasure. There are dangerous quests where one wrong turned the forest and you're lost forever. There are great perils and dark spells. But this is precisely what makes the end of the fairy tales all the more sweet. These lines, and they all lived happily ever after. Narnia is freed from the icy grip of the wicked queen. The beast is transformed into a prince through the love of Belle. Cinderella is rescued from loneliness and despair and ends her life in the palace. And so Frederick Beekner concludes, if the world of the fairy tale and our glimpses of it here and there are only a dream. They are one of the most haunting and powerful dreams the world has ever dreamed. And he suggests that actually fairy tales are the deepest intuition of truth that we have. He writes that in a chapter that he entitles The Gospel as Fairy Tale. I would suggest to you, as we end the life of Joseph this morning, that the life of Joseph is a fairy tale in the real world. Joseph is a person just like us who faces difficulty and darkness and despair. Just to recap, at age 17, he's sold off into slavery by his own brothers. How's that for a dysfunctional family? As a teen, he's carried off to a foreign country to live on his own. I mean, we have a hard time dropping off our our children for the first time at college to live on their own. And here's Joseph, carried off to Egypt, never to come home again. He won't see his family for 20 years. Here is Joseph, the teenager. Uh, forging a life of his own in Egypt, and despite he's unjustly thrown into prison, he's all but forgotten there. But despite all the twists and turns, despite all the difficulty and despair and darkness, you know what? At the end of the story, he lives happily ever after. There is an indestructible hope that leads him through life to an incredibly hopeful end. I would suggest to us this morning, not having known all of you, that no matter who you are, this is what we all want. We want an indestructible hope awaiting us at the end of life, don't we? We don't want our lives to be a tragedy that ends in tears and despair and a sigh. We don't even want our lives ultimately to be a comedy, you know, with lots of laughs along the way, but it doesn't really mean anything in the end. I think we all want to live with an indestructible hope that awaits us at the end, that makes all the suffering and difficulty infinitely worth it. Genesis 50, I think, offers us this. Genesis 50 teaches us that God provides his people with an indestructible hope that leads us through life. I think it does it in two ways. I think Genesis 50 offers up two sources of hope, God's providence in life and God's promises in death. God's providence in life and his promises in death, and that yields an indestructible hope that can lead us through life. So let's first look at God's providence in life. Genesis 50, as you heard me read through it, captures Jacob's burial and Joseph's death, which we'll talk about in a moment. First thing I want to talk about is what happens after Jacob's death and burial, because I think it communicates very clearly God's providence in life. When Jacob dies, uh, Joseph's brothers are fearful that in this moment, Joseph is finally going to take his revenge on them. And they say, what if Joseph holds a grudge and pays us back for all the wrongs we've done to him? And so they send word to him. And they said, your father left us these instructions. Forgive uh, your brothers for, the, for all the sins and wrongs that you have committed against them. And it's very interesting because uh, Jacob never said that. At least there's no record that he ever said that. Most commentators think this is just a, a straight-up lie. If, if Jacob really felt this way, you'd think he'd tell Joseph, you know, be kind to your brothers, don't hold it against them, what they did. He never says that. So this is, this is a lie, I think. It's, it's the brothers saving their own skin. Again. And look remar- how, how Joseph responds. It's remarkable. Verse 17. First, when the message came to him, it says Joseph wept. I don't think these are tears of anger. I think these are tears of sadness. Because Joseph says, I, I forgave you 20 years ago and we reconciled. And you didn't believe that? And you, you think I'm going to seek revenge on you? And so he re- reassures them yet again. Verse 21, he says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he, it's, a, it's a personal offer of care. He goes on to speak very kindly to them. It's a remarkable response. It's an amazing response to brothers who wronged him, to show them grace and generosity and kindness. I mean, it's not the way that our world responds, you know, when someone wrongs you, what do you want to do? You want to wrong them right back. When someone hurts you, what do you want to do? You want to hurt them right back. You want to pay them right back for what they did to you. And so how in the world does Joseph show grace and goodness and kindness to to these brothers who have done so much wrong and and committed so many sins against him. Well, the way he does this, he explains his secret in verse 20. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Uh, Most of us have no problem saying the first part, you intended uh, to harm me. I mean, we are, are very good at calling out injustice. Um, we're, we're very good at, at saying, you know, you, you harm me, and guess what's coming your way? Uh, I'm going to cancel you. I mean, you better uh, be concerned about your reputation because what you did to me, I mean, it's com- coming right back at you. That, that's how we typically respond. Joseph says this. He says, you intended to harm me, but then he goes on to say, but, you, but God intended it for good. And what Joseph is doing here is, I think, introducing a perspective of his life from 30,000 feet. So there's different perspectives. For example, there's two different perspectives on New York City. There, there's a the street level perspective on New York City when you're in the middle of, of Midtown and you're looking at New York City, there's that view. And then there's a 30,000 view of Manhattan when you've just taken off from New York Airport and you look at the city, there's that view. And Joseph is giving us both views of his life here. The street-level view is, to his brothers, you intended to harm me. I'm not going to candy-coat that. That's, that's, I know that's what you intended. But then he also gives a 30,000-foot view, but God intended it for good. You see, Joseph is holding two very difficult things together. Most people say this. If there is evil and injustice in the world, then God's not sovereign. He couldn't be sovereign. If God is sovereign then there there shouldn't be evil and injustice in the world. It's either or. You can't have it both ways. But look at what Joseph says. Joseph essentially says there's evil and injustice in the world. In fact, it happened to me. And yet God is still sovereign. It's a both and. Joseph, in other words, finds hope in God's providence in his life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, defines God's providence this way. It is... His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. It's a way of saying that God doesn't just create the world and then set it into motion and then leave it alone. No, He actively governs and sustains all His creatures. So God's providence governs everything that happens. Ephesians 1.11, He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. God's providence governs our daily life. Matthew 10.30 says... God numbers the hairs in her head. Not a sparrow falls outside of his fatherly care. God's providence even governs seemingly chance events. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. As a way of saying this, God's providence is comprehensive, constant, and personal. And Joseph's life, I think, as we've seen the stretch of it over these weeks, is the perfect example of God's providential activity, even in times of evil, even in times of injustice. Joseph is on the receiving end of injustice, and yet God is still at work in his life. He's sold off into slavery by his own brothers, and yet God uses this very act to get him to Egypt. Once he's in Egypt, he's unjustly thrown into prison. He's an innocent man. He's unjustly thrown into prison. But that's exactly where he meets the person who's going to introduce him to Pharaoh. When Joseph meets the Pharaoh and and the Pharaoh recognizes his gifts, Joseph eventually is raised to second in command to a position where he can save his own family in the famine. God's providence in life. And that, my friends, I think is what enables Joseph to forgive his brothers despite the wrong that they've done to him. You, you committed injustice to me, but God, I, I recognize God's hand was in that and he was working through that. Now, I know it's hard to believe in that God is in control. Maybe you're having a hard time believing that God is in control right now because of what's happening to you. In times of evil and injustice, it's hard to trust that God is in control. But perhaps the situation is a little bit like this. Last summer on our sabbatical, we were on a cruise, and I, was, I thought about this. When we were on a cruise ship, I never saw the captain. Uh, I heard his voice over the loudspeaker at, at least once at the beginning of the cruise, and maybe one more time. That, that's, I never saw him. I heard his voice twice. But in the 10 days that we were on board the ship, he was steering the ship toward its destination so that we had freedom to move about on the ship, to really to do whatever we wanted, to to go swimming, to to work at, to get drinks on on deck. And all the while, the ship was making steady progress toward its destination. Whether we were asleep or awake, the ship was making making steady progress toward its destination. And I would suggest to you that this is exactly like God's providence, though we do not see him there is a captain steering the ship of our lives, governing all things to arrive at our destination. Whether we are awake or asleep, God's providence is at work to bring us exactly where he wants us to be. And perhaps the chief evidence of God's providence is the cross of Christ. Peter says in Acts 2, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross." Think about the cross of Christ. On the one hand, wicked wicked men put an innocent man to death. There's this great injustice, Jesus dying on the cross. And yet in the very same moment, God's providence was at work through that very event to accomplish his redemptive purposes. This is God's providence in life. And my friends, I think if we know this, if we know God's providence in our lives, then even in midst of evil and injustice, we know that no one can ruin our lives. We know that God is accomplishing his purposes in and through our lives, and no one can thwart that. And so what that means practically in our relationships, it means we can forgive people even if they intend harm to us because God is protecting us and God is working out his plan in our lives despite that. It means we can let go of grudges and we don't have to seek revenge because God's in control and he's working all things out and he, he, he can handle uh, tough situations. It means we can show kindness and grace to people that don't deserve it because God is kind and, and gracious towards us and our lives are in his hands. So we can extend that towards others. We can be kind and gracious towards others. We can stop worrying even when we can't control things because we know that God controls things. And last, we can live with an indestructible hope because we know there is a captain steering the ship and he will bring us to his appointed end. God's providence in life gives us an indestructible hope. So the last question I have is, then how do we experience God's providence? And if you want to experience God's providence, I would suggest to you that there are at least two things you must do. Number one, we have to stop playing God. Look at the first thing that Joseph says in verse 19. He says to his brothers, am I in the place of God? Joseph recognizes if I hold a, a grudge against you, I'm putting myself in the place of God. If I seek revenge against you, I'm putting myself in the place of God. If I stand in judgment over you, I'm sitting in the place of God. As far as as long as I'm sitting in the place of God, I can never uh, experience God's providence. As long as I'm playing God in my life and in other people's lives, I'll never experience the providence of God. So the first thing that we have to do is stop playing God. The second thing we have to do is trust in God's providence. Look at the second thing Joseph says. He says, first, am I in the place of God? And then he says, but God. But God meant it for good. But God is in control, and he's always been in control. But God has been at work at every point in my life, even when I can't see it, even when I didn't feel it, even when I was was languishing in prison, and it was all but forgotten. God was at work, but God is at work. But God is at work in evil and injustice. My friends, That's what it means to trust in God's providence. To see that asterisk at the end of every sentence you write, but God. That we were objects of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. That's what it means to trust in God's providence. And if we understand what Christ did did, did for us on the cross, through which God's providence was mightily at work, we can trust also that God is in charge, that he's providentially in control. When we know God's providence, we will know an indestructible hope. Secondly, Genesis 50 teaches us God's promise in death. At the end of Genesis 49, if you uh, look back there in your Bible, you know that Jacob gives instructions to bury him in Canaan in the uh, cave at Machpelah. And then Genesis 50, which we read this morning together, it's a description of the burial service and it's a very lengthy description. It's 12 verses long, which is very interesting because if you read Genesis, you know that Abraham only gets two verses for his death. Isaac only gets two verses for his death, and Jacob's gets 12. You know, like, obviously the biblical writer wants us to note something here. There's something important going on here that he wants us to get. Three times is this phrase, going up to Canaan. They're going up to Canaan to bury Jacob. And if you have read Exodus, you know that this is his language used to describe the Exodus, when the Israelites would go up to the Promised Land. And so here in Genesis 50, the biblical writer is suggesting that this is Jacob's personal exodus from Egypt, which is foreshadowing and is a prequel to the greater exodus to come. It's kind of like that moment, like when you, when you watch a movie that's obviously a prequel, you get to the end of the movie and you know, I mean, this is like a sharp drama. you know it's a prequel. You know that it's a big setup for a sequel to come. I would suggest to you that Genesis ends like a prequel. It is set up. To set up for a greater sequel to come. In his burial instructions, Jacob communicates that Egypt is not his home. Think of this. Jacob could have had a massive state funeral. He might have even gotten his own pyramid. But instead, he chooses to be buried in a cave in Canaan. Why? Because Jacob is trusting God's promise in death. That his promise to Abraham and Isaac and now to him that he would bring his people to the promised land one day. And so Jacob, by choosing to be buried in the promised land, in a cave in the promised land, it is a down payment of an inheritance to come. It is the first fruits of a greater harvest to come. It is the promise of a greater fulfillment to come. It is a prequel of a greater sequel to come. It is a preview of a greater reality to come. Jacob is brought up the promised land as a foreshadowing of a greater Exodus and he's brought up as an exalted King notice this he's embalmed by the best Egyptian physicians he's mourned for 70 days which was a period of mourning for a Pharaoh there is a great procession of all the important dignitaries of Egypt that accompanies him up to Canaan and of course it foreshadows this greater exodus when the Israelites would leave Egypt in this great procession, full of the gold and silver of Egypt. At his death, Jacob, uh, Joseph also bears witness to the same coming reality. Now at the end of Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, verse 24, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At his death, Joseph is trusting God's promise to Abraham that God will visit his people and come to their aid and bring them to the promised land. And Joseph is so sure of this promise, he says, And when you leave, bring my bones with you. Joseph also knows that his true home is not in Egypt. He spent all his adult life in Egypt. He's risen to great prominence in Egypt. He's he's accomplished many great things in Egypt. On the outside, he looks Egyptian, so the brothers didn't even recognize him when they first saw him. And at his death, he's embalmed embalmed like an Egyptian. But he's not an Egyptian at heart. Joseph remembers that his true identity is as an Israelite. And his true home is in the Promised Land. And that, my friends, is why Joseph wants to be buried in Canaan, his home, the Promised Land. It's like when Tina's dad died a few years ago. He wanted to be buried in the New York area, even though he was living in Florida and had lived in Florida for 30 years. But he apparently didn't feel like Florida was his home. He always felt like New York was his home because this is where he was raised and this is where his family is. And so he wanted to be buried in New York. And Joseph wants to be buried in Canaan because he knows that is his true home. Joseph is trusting in God's promises in death, and that is why Hebrews 11.22 identifies this moment as a peak of faith. Hebrews 11.22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Genesis ends as a prequel as a preview, as a promise of a greater reality to come. Joseph's closing words are these, God will surely come to your aid. And those words were fulfilled in the Exodus when God did indeed come to his people and come to their aid and led them out of Egypt to the promised land. And it pointed towards yet a greater fulfillment, a greater exodus when God would again come to the aid of his people in the form of Jesus Christ to rescue his people from slavery to sin. And pointed to an even greater fulfillment Revelation ends on these words. Come Lord Jesus. There is a sense in which the whole Bible is a prequel of a greater reality to come. Come Lord Jesus. God will again come to the aid of his people when Jesus Christ returns and leads his people out to a greater promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. This is God's promise to his people in death. He will not leave us in the grave. He will come to the aid of his people. In 2022, the Washington Post published an article interestingly entitled, Cremation is Becoming the American Way of Death. It reported that 56% of Americans were cremated in 2020, which is uh, more than double the figure just two decades earlier. And it projects that by 2040, four out of five Americans who die will be cremated. We don't consider these topics very much. It's it's interesting. The article identified environmental and economic reasons for this. You might guess that. But it also commented that it is an expression of an increasingly secular, transient, and death-phobic nation. It quoted one funeral director observing, this is the first generation that deals with death without dealing with the dead. Stephen Prothero, I was listening to a, a podcast of his, he's a professor at Boston University and wrote a book on the history of cremation. It just says, this is a stunning rise in cremation. This is, the, the numbers are, are just skyrocketing and it's stunning. Especially when you consider death rituals don't tend to change. I mean, at death we, t- t- we, you, we usually go back to to our traditions and what's most comfortable. Our death rituals, he says, communicate a story that we're telling about death. So traditionally, burial and care for the body has always communicated that a person's body is an important part of who they are and points to the hope of a resurrection. Cremation, on the other hand, is is often central to Hindu and Buddhist funerals where the body is viewed as not part of the person. So cremation releases a soul from the body. And cremation allows freedom, and a lot of people like this, to make up your own story about death. Because once you have the ashes, you can sprinkle them wherever you want. In your favorite national park, or your favorite sports stadium, or Disney World. Berthero wonders if cremation is yet another expression of an increasingly secular culture that has very mixed and ambivalent views about death. Joseph insists that his bones be carried up from Egypt and buried in Canaan because he has specific beliefs about what's happening at at death. He believes in God's promises at death. You see, my friends, what we do with death is telling a story about what we believe happens at death. When Tim Keller knew that he was dying of pancreatic cancer, he basically planned his own memorial service. I I guess that's what pastors do when they know they're dying. They plan their own memorial service, and, and Tim Keller did that. He picked out all the hymns and wrote introductory notes explaining why he chose those hymns for his memorial service. So one hymn he chose, which was sung at his memorial service, was Jesus lived and so shall I. The last verse is this. Jesus lives and death is now, but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou has a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find thy hopes were just. Jesus is the Christian's trust. And his introductory notes to this hymn, read this. This hymn gives us the hope for life after death. It should not be sung at too slow a pace or it will sound like a dirge. So keep it brisk. And remember, it's describing our hope for the future. There's nothing that can happen here that can't make you better. It says that at the beginning of the last verse, Jesus lives and death is now but my entrance into glory. The way that Tim Keller planned his memorial service was the expression of what he believed happens at death. The way Jacob and Joseph planned their funerals are an expression of what they believe about death. God makes promises to his people in death that this life is a prequel to a greater life of glory to come, making death not an end, but a doorway to glory. We live in a culture that avoids and even denies death. For example, when's the last time you saw a church being built with a cemetery right next to it? I mean, that's how they used to build churches. No one does that anymore. We're trying to push death as far away from us as as, as possible. The life of Joseph shows us a providence in life and God's promise in death. And if we know those things, we can have an indestructible hope. Our response song that we're gonna sing after we go to the Lord's table says this, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. My friends, we have a savior who has come to our aid who is with us by his Holy Spirit, who will come again one day to our aid. And if we put our trust in Christ, we will have an indestructible hope in life and in death. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for his dramatic life, his ups and downs, because it's so like us. We have lives filled with drama, and we have darkness and despair and ups and downs, but we so want an indestructible hope. We so want a hopeful, bright end awaiting us, and thank you that Genesis 50 points us to that. Thank you that your providence guides us through life, and you give us promises in death that there is a life of glory to come. Help us to live in light of those things. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.